1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Ben Jones is the president and CEO of the Ruffed Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society. Do you know that the Ruffed Grouse Society is over 60 years old? Actually, blew my mind. Uh, the American Woodcock Society was actually added to the Rough Grouse Society in 2014. Ben Jones and I get into a little bit of a nerdy science-based discussion on rough grouse. Why they're declining, what do they need, what are their habitats, and what you as a layperson that may own timber, may own forest, may own land can do about it. I myself have only seen a rough grouse in Maine. I have yet to hunt one and I've yet to eat one. So I was fascinated to have this conversation with Ben to just learn a little bit more about rough grouse, and I guarantee you the majority of you that are listening to this are going to get a couple of kernels of good information around this thing that you probably didn't even know existed in the woods around where you hunt. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins, and that reason is simple, is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. So, I, as I say, I'm jealous because all I can hear is like this cacophony of beautiful songbirds <laughs> in the background. You must be staring out of beautiful, you know, windows, windows open, you know, really imbuing nature's essence <laughs> into you. Well, it is, it is an absolutely gorgeous spring day where I'm at in South Central Pennsylvania. And I'm in my home office today, which we have a little homestead here. So, yeah, it is we're just kind of, we are out here in nature, in the sticks from the home office today. I am jealous. I am stuck in a, in a room. I don't know how I would describe this room. It is um, above the garage, no windows to speak of. 
Um, yeah, I can't compare actually, Ben Jones. <laughs> I cannot compare at all. Well, Ben Jones, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Good to be with you this afternoon. Well, it's always it's always impressive to me. I don't know how, what you feel about this, but I'm not in the world that I live in. I, you probably don't get this so much in your world, but the world that I live in, I get a lot of people reaching out to me saying, "Hey, tell my story. You need to look at me." And every time someone does that, I it, they immediately get put on the do not contact <laughs> list. <laughs> Because they're doing it for the wrong reasons, right? They're doing, they've got, they've got motivations beyond, you know, their motivations are ego driven, you know, versus being selfless. Uh, but every so often I get individuals that reach out to me and say, hey, you need to talk to this guy. And that's what happened with you. Um, Tommy uh, Lana, I believe his really? last name is. Yeah reached out and said, hey, you, um, you seem to you know, enjoy ecologically hard-hitting topics. Mm -hmm. uh, you should reach out to Ben. He's the foremost expert on ecologically hard-hitting topics. Right, Ben? That, that's a wonderful endorsement from uh, a guy that I have a lot of respect for, Tommy Lauder. For sure. I appreciate that. <laughs> that's a good deal. Uh, so, yeah, that's how we got connected. And, um, yeah, I'm truly excited. Um, Thank you for accepting the invitation. Ben, yeah. if people don't know who you are, would you give a small introduction to who you are and what you do? I sure will. My name is Ben Jones. I'm president and CEO of the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. And RGS and AWS is a group that um, just in 2021, we enjoyed our 60th anniversary. So founded in 1961. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, 60 years at this. Um, and it's always been, you know, we've, we've got this namesake of, of the rough grouse, and, and we can rabble on this a little bit. But the Rough Grouse Society has always really been about forest wildlife in general. From way back in 1961, the founders, uh, they weren't even all grouse hunters, per se. But it was just about learning more about woodland wildlife and uh, and this is a budding of science in the early 1960s, how we could scientifically manage to improve habitats for woodland wildlife. And it's all kind of, uh, the rough grouse is a fitting ambassador for sure. So at, at times like, man, it, it seems so self-limiting to have a single species name. And so in our, you know, my elevator speech always involves, we do forest management for wildlife and the rough grouse are a fitting ambassador and a bellwether. Mm. And when we look at rough grouse and some of the, uh, the habitat threats of today, they're also one of the most climate imperiled species in North America. So um, never a better time to have rough grouse as your bellwether than right now. But we've always been about what do you, What do you management. mean? What do you mean rough grouse is being affected by climate change? Can you give an example of that? Yeah, so rough grouse, or uh, I'm, I'm air quoting, here uh, a northern species so uh how far south do they extend well, here's, here's where it gets really interesting we can nerd out on the ecology they extend all the way down into northern georgia but through okay. through the southern appalachians they only occur at higher elevations where the climate is more 
northern light. So, for example, I actually did rough grouse research in western North Carolina for several years, and all of the rough grouse there occurred above about 2,500 feet in elevation. So my study site in the Blue Ridge Mountains, the seasons, the vegetation were very similar in western North Carolina at high elevations to what I had grown up with at home in north central Pennsylvania. Mm. So there's this elevation. So essentially what you're saying is they're getting squeezed, right? They're getting squeezed from a temperature range perspective. Exactly. That's exactly right. Hey. 60 years. But you, you, well, technically you aren't a single species organization. You're a dual species organization. Yeah. American Woodcock were added as a companion, a companion brand in 2014. And the idea there. Oh, really? Okay. A, a lot of upland hunters, grouse and woodcock, are kind of you know talked about synonymously and uh, and upland pursuits. And but the difference with American woodcock is, you know, they don't have this kind of uh, geographic constriction that rough grouse do with temperature and climate and elevation. So we'll have woodcock that are mi- migratory, of course, traveling from the Northwoods and spending their winters all the way down into Louisiana and Alabama and coastal plain Carolinas, Eastern Texas. So we expanded our geography by including the American Woodcock Society in 2014. Was the American Woodcock Society an existing organization already, or you just added a species to increase just geographic diversity? The, The latter is correct. It was not an existing organization already. How is the, I'll get to rough grass shortly, but is, is there a sort of reputable means to measure woodcock population abundances? How is American, how is the woodcock doing? Yeah, so we, we can address this with both grouse and woodcock, and we'll start with the timber doodle. So every state, And starting around 2005 or so, every state wildlife agency was required to develop a state wildlife action plan. And that state wildlife action plan was to be a blueprint for that state's wildlife conservation. And a key part of that was these plans identified species of greatest conservation need. So that can all be capitalized. It's kind of a proper name, SGCN. And uh, Mm -hmm. since... Wildlife action plans were developed in the early 2000s. American woodcock are listed as a species of greatest conservation need in 28 state wildlife action plans. Ruffed grouse are also listed in 19 state wildlife action plans as species of greatest conservation need. So that's a pretty big deal when you're two bellwether species and one of the most widely distributed game birds um, in North America with the rough grouse are listed in that many state wildlife action plans. I've, you've, you've got something going on. What would you, if you had to look back over time, Ben, do, does scientists, do scientists have a, a population abundance estimate over time for a woodcock? Mm, ab- absolutely. So there are long-term what they call singing ground routes and it's established routes uh during the spring during uh and after it occurs throughout migration moving from south to north where singing males 
are counted along established routes. So it gives a very good population index over many decades. And with rough grouse, there are actually a couple different things. Uh, some states have used drumming surveys also in the spring um, where observers will go and uh, count males as heard by the drumming sound that they make when they're trying to attract females. But also, there uh, most states also have long-term uh, either flush count rates from hunter-submitted data or harvest rates from those same hunter-submitted databases. Wouldn't those established transects, though, be biased based on habitat condition or change in habitat condition over time? Yeah, they, they could be. But if you're thinking about kind of this, what we call this shifting mosaic, it's almost like Christmas lights turning off and on where you've got young forests and it doesn't stay young forever. It grows, other disturbances occur and other young forests is popping up. So over time on these established routes should represent those successional states across lands. But yeah, some of those the routes, routes will, are large enough. Right. Some of those routes will be in or out of optimal habitat at any given time. But the idea is that if you've got them distributed across the landscape, that uh, you're representative. So the routes are designed to pick up any potential patch mosaics that you have on the landscape. In theory, yes. Do, do woodcock and rough grouse, are they experiencing the same issues? It is largely the same issues. And the biggest contributor comes down to habitat. And a lot of attention with both of these species is given to uh, young forest or early successional habitat as one of the key missing pieces in that diversity across landscapes. Uh, but we also need to realize and recognize that that diversity of habitat condition is what's really important. And we're also lacking older forest uh, on the tails of that distribution. So we're lacking older forest and we're lacking young forest across landscapes. And what we have is kind of this unnatural, uh, really large bell-shaped curve of middle-aged forest uh, because of what happened across most of the eastern United States and most of North America within, give or take, 25 years of 1900. It was all clear-cut and or plowed, turned to agriculture. Most of our forest in North America was reset somewhere around 1900. So now we have kind of this glut forest all in an unnatural single age class that's somewhere right around 100 and 120 years old. Ben, um... Again, talking to both species, but maybe it's more appropriate for one or the other. Do different life stages of the respective birds utilize different types of habitat? Is yes, that why this, we need a, a mosaic? Yeah, you, you got it. That's it exactly. And it, it's, it's most defined in rough grouse. And there was a gentleman right around the time that the Rough Grouse Society got rolling by the name of Gordon Gullian who worked largely in Minnesota, but in the lake states. And he set out to really um, to learn some things about the biology of rough grouse and how it applied to manage. And what Gordon Gullian realized is that during those various life stages from nesting to brood rearing to fall habitat to overwinter habitat, the grouse did utilize the full spectrum of forest ages. 
And so his recommended management approach then was kind of this checkerboard pattern of alternating timber harvests and older forests. Just like I said, the way I always envision it as like Christmas tree lights blinking on and off. Um, they're very dynamic environments. None of it's static. None of it stays the same forever. So if you propose these harvest units where every 10 years you were harvesting a certain proportion and then letting the others grow and that just moved across the landscape time because you'll see rough grouse nesting many times in older forests. You'll see them raising their broods on the margins between young and older forests. Uh, they'll spend a lot of time in the fall and winter in the younger forest where there's high density stem cover. So the diversity is really the key. If what you say in terms of the bell-shaped curve of the forest, so you know, we've got this glut of 100, 120-year-old forests, have we seen a rough grouse decline ever since the 1910s or 1920s, or did, is it only sort of coming to fruition here in the last 20, 30 years that we've seen the decline? Yeah, that's a... This to me is one of the most fascinating things when you look at kind of this historical ecology. So coming into 1900, probably the biggest problem with rough grouse populations would have been market hunting because that predated any game laws and uh, market hunting for rough grouse. I mean, it was a tremendous market for right. grouse meat because any grouse hunter could appreciate. And so at the same time, we had this widespread over-exploitation of the forest. So habitat was in really poor condition. But again, these systems are resilient and nothing stays the same forever. And we get in to the 20s and the 30s and all of a sudden some of these forests are growing back. And it was really good conducive environments to grouse. And you also had a little bit of diversity there too because you had some areas that were experiencing fires. You had some areas actually that couldn't be logged due to steep slopes. So you had this habitat diversity responding and coming back in the 20s and 30s. And that forest started growing up in succession. And then after World War II, you had another um, interesting kind of societal shift where there was a lot of farmland abandonment throughout the country and you had more industrialization. So people were leaving the farms and you had a lot of failed farms. So a lot of that land was coming into state ownership. So you had this next wave of suitable successional habitat coming in when all that farmland was abandoned. And that maintained mm. really good habitat up through the fifties, sixties, seventies, and even into the early eighties. Um, and then at that point, uh, most of the successional diversity forest age diversity across landscapes has been maintained by active timber harvests. But over that 100-year <laughs> period, you had kind of a couple of different waves of human activity that were really uh, impacting habitat across large landscapes. So given this change in habitat, have we seen rough grouse now extirpated from any states in the U.S.? Um, from entire states, almost, and I'll give you an example at a statewide level, and following severe declines, and over about the past 30, 30 or so years, the declines have been uh, really stark 
downward declines and rough droughts. And so one state where they crossed the tipping point uh, and were listed as state endangered just recently was the state of Indiana. Uh, and this is a state where rough grouse were second only at, at some point in harvest, second only to white-tailed deer. So it wasn't well, like there weren't ever many grouse in Indiana. There were. And now they're state endangered. Uh, right where I'm sitting uh, today as we're talking in the state of Pennsylvania where rough grouse are our state bird, there are counties here where rough grouse can be considered extra. And that's a combination of two things, uh, a lack of active forest management, and then also just straight up habitat forest loss, largely to develop. If you had to put a guess in terms of those two major factors, i.e. loss of habitat and lack of management, are they even? Are they 50-50? 60-40? What's the percentage breakdown, Ben? Yeah, I think they compound each other because as as you have this loss of forested habitat available across large areas, and at one at one point, just as an example, in Pennsylvania, I saw the number of 400 acres per day of open space or potential habitat being lost. As that's constricting, it becomes even more important than that you have the diversity on what's remaining. <laughs> So Mm -hmm. I don't think you could really say it's this percent this, this percent the other. It's one occurring and then the other uh, becoming that much more important that you add diversity, diverse forest age habitats on the land that's remaining. So I guess the burning question to people listening and to me is why, what is driving the lack of active forest management? Oh my gosh, that. That, is it, that is it really, pure economic forces? Oh, it can be. It absolutely can be. And I'll pause there for a minute and just go into the economics of it as a, a, an interesting uh, dichotomy with other forms of conservation. Um, if you look at grassland conservation, for example, and just add a couple other game birds uh, like pheasant uh, or quail, In conservation of their habitats, we're looking to take agricultural land usually out of production to let it revert to habitat. We have a massive farm bill that funds that amazing work, but we're paying commodity producers to take that land out of production for a certain number of years, 10 or 15 years, to make habitat. On the forest management side, when we're doing the management, It puts a commodity product on the market because the wood products and the timber harvested, there's a market for that wood. So you can see already that there are a couple different options with pursuing conservation on the forest sector because the work is putting a commodity product on the market. So markets are very important, but probably the biggest obstacle is really public perception about managing forests. you know, I, I could remember when I was a kid, when it, it came to the public's attention about clear-cutting at that time of rainforests. Oh, and terrible, so, right? Terrible. Absolutely. Clearing of rainforests is a, is a, a calamitous loss, uh, that over-exploitation. You know, it's similar to what we saw here in 1900, just decades later. <laughs> and so, but then that became any tree-cutting 
was bad. And today, right. uh, for, for, forests are a major driver of potential climate mitigation. So it's a very easy statement for those who don't support management to say, forests are really important for climate mitigation. Why would you ever cut a tree? And so our challenge is we have to have a much more nuanced conversation that takes more than seven seconds of looking at a social media post to say, well, this is why you would cut a tree. This is why young forests are important adjacent to old forests. And that old forests have a lot of carbon, for example, in the bank stored. Young forests are sequestering more of today's carbon out of the atmosphere that we're creating today. So our carbon optimization scenario, so our way to optimize the strength of forests as a carbon mit a climate mitigator is to have this diverse portfolio of young and old forests sequestering and storing carbon. But already you can see that's a much more nuanced conversation than forests oh, man. Why would you cut a tree? <laughs> ben, Ben, I thought I had a hard job when it comes to convincing non-hunters and anti-hunters about like why we kill animals, trying to convince people not to, to quote unquote chop down a tree or actually the opposite. You're trying to convince them that it's right. okay to chop down a yeah. tree. It's okay to kill a tree. Holy smokes. That's it. It's, it's very similar. And I think we need to approach both the, both of those things similarly because it's it's largely um, an emotionally driven response that one thousand percent. And you know another example would be wild horse management or or issues with feral cats. Science is really clear uh, how damaging that is to ecosystems. But when we try to manage those populations, horses or cats or whatever it may be, it elicits a very visceral response. The same thing with wildlife and hunting and trying to get that message. Ben, what if we created the feral horse and feral cat society? You're, you're on your you're on your own, man. I'm not touching that one. I'm, you already pointed it out. I've got challenges enough with forest management. I'm not touching horses. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. Horses, cats. Oh my gosh. Anyway, anyway. What if, yeah, it, feels, um, it feels like the deck is stacked a lot of times, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, but, you know, if it wasn't, let me ask, if it wasn't stacked, we wouldn't do what we do, though. Um, ben, well, if somebody's listening to this and they've got forests, they have family property, they're like, man, yeah, I've yeah. never seen a rough grouse on my property, even though they may be in the, you know, northern Tennessee, northern North Carolina, Virginia, yeah. Pennsylvania. What can they do to, and I'm going to purposely ask the question this way, how, how can they improve their habitat for rough grouse, but also not sort of kick themselves in the shin in terms of, you know, loss of revenue of that property? Yeah. So this really comes to the definition of conservation. I mean, the definition of conservation. This word, the term was coined by Gifford and Joe, who of course, during Theodore Roosevelt's administration, formed the US Forest Service and, and really gave birth to forestry as a profession. 
coined the phrase conservation as protection through use. And, you know, we think the challenges that we have today are difficult, and they really are. Think back to the early 1900s of what Pinchot and Roosevelt were trying to overcome with this overexploitation and the, the sheer power of the timber barons of that time. So these conservation founders needed to come up with a solution, and they did that by pointing out that forest conservation is protection through use. And the only way we could keep our country strong was to make sure that we were wisely stewarding this resource that our nation had as part of its strength. So conservation really means protection through use, and it came about in the context of forests. So when we think about landowners today and this issue of development, if there are strong forest product markets and a landowner can work on a sustainable forest management plan over time, then they can see a steady stream of revenue for that property that helps them keep that forest as forest as opposed to selling off a lot to pay the taxes or any of a number of things that could be monetarily driven. So this idea of conservation and having a sustainable forest management plan, the word you'll hear used a lot now is working land. <laughs> we're putting these lands to work. We're sustainably managing. And when a landowner can do that, then they're also maximizing the habitat diversity on that property. And I'm, I'm under no illusions that uh, I'm going to get everyone to fall in love with rough grouse and, you know, everybody's going to call a consulting forester and say, I want to manage my land for grouse. But we don't need that either. It's much more likely that they would call and say, you know, I want to manage my land for white-tailed deer. My family and I hunt. Right. I want to manage it for deer and for turkeys. Right. That's fantastic. Because if I'm writing a management plan for white-tailed deer, it's going to look almost exactly the same as the management plan I would write for rough grouse. It's going to have that mix of young, middle-aged, and old forest in rotation across that land. So if, if somebody, again, like they say, yep, I'm in, and they've got, their, they've got the typical 250 acres, 300 acres, of which you know, 160 acres is just this mature timber, you know, what do they do, Ben? Oh man, that's a that's a, a real blessing to have that much. And what we see is more typical is probably in that twenty to fifty acre range. Um, but either okay. way, what we want them to do is get with a certified, uh, a reputable forestry professional to write a management plan for them. And this is where the Rough Grouse Society is really active right now. Um, we have actually. Just found out an, about a National Fish and Wildlife Foundation award that we got in Pennsylvania to make sure that we have those professional foresters on the ground to be able to meet with landowners and help them write those management. So those are the types of things that we do in our mission focus. Make sure there are enough good foresters out there to go write these management plans and to tell landowners, do that outreach and marketing to let landowners know that we have people available to come and visit them. Mm. Mm. So we're, we're getting to that point of the operative model of where RGS and AWS 
come into this picture and how are we trying to fix some of these problems? Does, are you guys in that grant that you got from NIFWF, is that just, uh, that's just in Pennsylvania? So you've just got people in Pennsylvania now? Well, not yet, but we'll have. No, we do have, uh, and this is, um, isn't the first round of the SNFWIF funding in Pennsylvania. We're in several rounds, so there are people operating here. Uh, we have similar arrangements in Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin. So uh, all across the board, we're working to put more of these positions on the ground, whether it's through funding sources from foundations like NIFWIF or working with federal funds uh, like i mentioned the farm bill a little bit ago there's forestry money in the farm bill so we'll work with natural resources conservation service and higher technical service positions through agreements there so yeah this is a major push for us mm -hmm. what would that to almost like push to the practical side ben what would the the forest management plan look like in terms of actionable things that go in the ground for that individual are they clear cutting X amount of acres? Are they thinning? Is it all of the above? This to me is the really fun part because forest management and habitat management is this combination of art and science. We've got the science that tells us how to manage certain forest types sustainably. But when you walk out to that property, every single one of them, there no two are identical. So here's where you get the kind of you know, I don't want to be too cliche here, but you've got this new canvas to really work with with every property that you're on. But overall, yes, it's going to, the first step is always to take an inventory. What's here? What's the distribution of different age forests? What issues might that landowner have that need to be addressed immediately, no matter what your intent is? Things like non-native invasive plants. Uh, some of some of those bad guys popping up all over the place that need to be addressed right away. Uh, are there some fields that can be improved? Uh, what's the road and trail network? Does the landowner have a desire to improve a trail network across their family woodland? And how can we use timber harvest and the retired landings and fall roads after that harvest? How can we use them? in a way that develops a trail system that landowners. So the first step is that inventory of what they've got, and you need to understand that landowner's objectives for the property. And then from there, you start piecing that plan together. And yeah, in most cases, there'll be some harvesting. Uh, there might be some fixing up uh, past management that wasn't beneficial. But from there, it can go in a lot of different directions. Yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, from my wildlife management days at Mississippi State University, that is the fun part, is that when you get to the land, being able to sort of plot things out, map things out, put things into play, and then obviously watch the, you know, watch things happen. Um, ben, what about, obviously, the, this, this hypothetical landowner doesn't have any rough grouse. He does everything that he possibly or she possibly can to get rough grouse back. One of the chances of rough grouse coming back, I guess, is the question. If you're in a state, I'm making the assumption I'm in a state that there is a rough grouse population. Yeah, it, it just really depends on where your property is in location to that still established 
population of grouse and probably most importantly, what's between your property and that established grouse population. How, do they and move around the, much, Ben? They do, but not to the extent that a migratory bird like a woodcock will, clearly. Right, but right. What grouse have this genetic programming in their heads. It's absolutely remarkable. And early October, those broods that have been together all summer and grew up together, about end of September, beginning to the middle of October, this flip switches and they have just got to go. And some people call it crazy flight, but it's this need to disperse. And you'll see rough grouse dispersing up to 10 miles on these call them crazy flights to find their new territory, to disperse their, you know, for the ecologist uh, geeks out there, you know, really disperse their genetic material out to new places. So in doing that, it's a great way for grouse to occupy new habitat. But anything over about 10 miles, you really start pushing. (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, is there a, a general estimate of the population of rough grouse in the, in the United States right now, Ben? I, I have not seen one. Okay. A, a nationwide estimate of how many. I was just curious. I was just curious if if there was like yeah. Is there you statewide know, numbers? It, so, like we were talking about with the uh, the surveys. Most often, they're more indices measuring trends over time than actual population numbers. So the numbers that we do know is based on those indices over decades that cross much of most of rough grouse range, there's been a 50% decline hey. over the past three to four decades. And across some areas of that rough grouse range, we're looking at as much of, as an 80% decline in populations from the early 1980s to right now. Mm. So it's, it's been a drastic downward pattern. Mm. Ben, if people are interested in, number one, I know we haven't talked much about American woodcock, um, but if they're interested in rough grouse specifically, how to get rough grouse back on their habitat, what to do, what they can do to do you know, best management practices for rough grouse, as well as American woodcock. How, what's the best way they can get a hold of you or get a hold of information? Yeah, so the, the quickest way to do it is to go on to our website and under habitat management, we've got our, uh, our regional pages. And then at the bottom of those regional pages, there's a mugshot and the contact information for our forest conservation directors or our, sort, our state forestry coordinators or our forest wildlife specialists that are that are doing the work on the ground. So that's a great place to start is dropping them an email or giving them a phone. And that's roughgrousesociety.org. R-U-F-F-E-D, grousesociety.org. And, and just orientate us again once you're on that page. Where do you go? Well, I'm going to navigate it with you right now. So here we go. We're going to roughgrousesociety.org. Of course, I have it bookmarked here. <laughs> and uh, across the headers on the top, there'll be a conservation dropdown. And then east of each of our regions shows up under that. So okay, great. Lakes, great. Mid-Atlantic. 
So just pick your region or where you're from. Yep. I picked Southern Appalachian. And, and we're, we're all trying to take the L out of rough grouse. There's no L in there. I, I can't tell you how many times. Oh, people call <laughs> them people ruffled grasses? Ru uh, yes, ruffled grouse. <laughs> I didn't even think about it. Um, Happens a lot. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm looking at uh, your individuals that are working for you down here in Southern Appalachia. Number one, got a very young cohort of biologists down here. See, it, it has really... It's really cool it, to see. Yeah, it's been so motivating. We had a business model change uh, in 2020 uh, with all the disruption that was going on in 2020 and we we shifted our staff expertise where for many years we hired we had uh, regional biologists on staff and a lot of the focus of those regional biologists of course was the habitat piece uh, but also in there was the research piece and in my 20 plus years in forest wildlife conservation we we've got the biology down We've got mm -hmm. 60 plus years biology that tells us what we need to do. The really hard part then is doing what it, that research tells us, which is managing our forests. So in 2020, we kind of shifted focus on our staff, um, our staff recruitment to our forest conservation directors. And we were looking for people here who understand forest economics, forest product markets, harvest logistics, and all of those areas of expertise that we really need to get the work done on the ground. And when, when we started recruiting for those positions, it was really inspiring to see the young people that are interested in this kind of work. Yeah, it's really, really cool. And I think actually in, my, in a prior life of mine, I actually might have engaged, because Ben Rhodes's name is very, very familiar to me. Yeah, really um, talented young guy that's working. He's an all-lands forester in Kentucky. So he's working public lands, national forests, uh, state wildlife areas, and private lands delivery as well. I don't know why I know his name. Maybe he's interacted with us before, um, but it just sticks out. I, I think uh, also in the Southern Alps, Zach Chandler is also a Mississippi State alum. As oh, okay. Okay. And what is, is Ben Rhodes a uh, Mississippi State alum? No. You know, I'm not for sure. I, it doesn't strike me that he was, but he might be. Okay. Maybe that's where you know. Well, Ben Jones, I much appreciate you allowing me to... I don't often get... Cody gives me grief all the time. I don't often get to geek out and throw science around in a podcast very often. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate you uh, being uh, giving me the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, I first heard about the rough grouse, honestly, from um, the guys that are running the Deer Hunter program. Yeah. D-E-A-R. Yeah. Deer Hunter. Um, Ad I think Adam is one of the guys' names. Just two guys there running that. Um, Cody. That's right, and Cody. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly new to the United States. I'd not that that's an excuse. Um, I've never seen a rough grouse in the wild yet. Oh. Actually, no, I have. I lie. I've seen one in Maine. I've seen one in Maine. Um, 
Well, that's, I haven't that's hunted be one. something we'll have to work on. Yeah, I haven't hunted one, and I haven't eaten one either. So, oh, wow. got to do something about that. Absolutely. But, um, ben, if there's anything we can do to help you, um, if there's any statistics or infographics that we can help build out for you and sort of collaborate with you on them, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. That's what Blood Origins was built for. We have we don't really have an ego. All we want to do is showcase the good work that hunters and hunting is doing for wildlife. And obviously you guys are doing a yeoman's effort on that part. Well, it, it's so much appreciated. And it's really helpful uh, to give us some exposure on here so people understand what the Rough Grouse Society is doing. And I too appreciate the, the ability to geek out on the science a little bit as CEO at this point. I definitely spend more time on the, on the other parts of this business at the means to the end, but to be able to talk That's science right. and biology is a lot of fun. You're welcome. <laughs> well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Four in the morning. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.